Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Canada's oldest Indigenous theatre company is presenting a new opera in the coming week in Toronto. The Indigenous cast brings to life the story of two sisters and their ancestral past, and an upcoming play in Los Angeles embraces the culture of Alaska's Tlingit people through one woman's personal reflections. Those are two of the upcoming live theatre productions coming to stages in the near future. We'll talk with the artists involved and other Native-led events right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. The Montana Arts Council recently announced the state's new poet laureate. Yellowstone Public Radio's Orlinda Worthington introduces us to Chris Latre, who was the state's 11th poet laureate and a member of a Montana tribe. That is hello, all of my relatives. We are all related, and that is where my inspiration comes from, the relationship we have with everything around us, human and non-human. Absolutely, that is it. Chris Latre is a member of the Little Shell Tribe of Chippewa. He says his priority as Poet Laureate will be getting to small rural communities that may be overlooked when it comes to writing and poetry. If I had to focus on one thing, it's to get the word to these young people that you can choose a path like mine and be successful in ways different from maybe how people tell you you need to proceed. He says, like many of us, he grew up with the idea that poetry is just a bunch of fancy words, a misconception he hopes to change. You know, when I speak to kids, I tell them that their story is 100% unique and there is nobody who is experiencing the world the way they are. And the importance of them sharing that story through any kinds of words on the page or orally, that is important. And however you choose to frame that with words is poetry. Your life is poetry. For Yellowstone Public Radio News, I'm Orlinda Worthington. Mother Angela Gonzalez and daughter Ermelina Gonzalez of Anchorage, Alaska, posted their doll titled Fish Camp Barbie, which features an Athabascan Barbie doll dressed in traditional clothing. The Barbie movie premiered just six days before the doll went viral and has gained nearly 100,000 views on Twitter and TikTok. KNOM's Ava White reports. In this scene, a Barbie doll proudly wears a vibrant hot pink cuspuck complemented by a beaded necklace, stylish moose hide cuffs, and headband. Positioned on a nearby table is a fish made from salmon skin aligned with beadwork. Barbie is holding an ulu, ready to skillfully prepare her fish. All clothing was handmade by Ermelina Gonzalez. Angela Gonzalez's family's fish camp was located along the Koyukuk River, where her family frequented when she was a young girl. She has played with Barbie since she was a little kid and says that her grandmother used to make accessories for her dolls. You know, all the dolls did have their little umu and um, we would have like a little fish camp theme um, with fish rack. Angela Gonzalez explains the importance of sharing culture towards younger generations and why it's important for Alaska Native children to feel equally represented. That they will be able to see themselves represented, even though it's not for mass market or anything like that, and that they can be inspired to um, create what they want to create. You know, maybe they can make a fishnet or a dip net, you know, just something that can inspire them. Barbie has a reputation for embracing numerous roles. 
ranging from a CEO to a gymnast, a construction worker, and now a skilled fisherwoman at a subsistence camp. Through the innovative creation of their own Barbie scenes, Angela and Irmalina Gonzalez have succeeded in fashioning a compelling narrative focused on culture. Their efforts serve as an inspiring testament for young girls across various Alaska Native cultures, conveying the powerful message that they too can embody the spirit of Barbie in their own unique ways. Reporting from Nome, Alaska, I'm Ava White. I'm Joel Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty, it begins with us. Registration ends October 13th at niea.org. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. After its world premiere in Alaska last year, a new play by Frank Henry Koshkatas heads to Los Angeles this month. Where the Summit Meets the Stars is an adventure that sparks a Tlingit woman's reintroduction to her culture after a dramatic rescue. And Albuquerque's Two Worlds Native Theater is gearing up for a performance focusing on Native women's stories. But first, we're going to hear about the world premiere next week in Toronto of an Indigenous opera production. Algonquin Anishinaabe libertist Dr. Spy Enome Welch has been working on canoe with other indigenous artists and it debuts September 12th. The musical story follows four main characters as spiritual and contemporary worlds collide. What's happening on stage in your native community? Let us know, theater fans, by calling 1 800 996 2848. Call us sooner rather than later and we'll get your comments on the air. From Toronto in Ontario, Canada, we're joined by Dr. Spy Denome Welch. He's Algonquin Anishinaabe, and he's the libertist and co-composer of the opera Canoe. Hello, Spy. Welcome to Native America Calling. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Looking forward to talking with you. I want to introduce our second guest now, who is in Los Angeles, California, Frank Henry Koshkatas. He's a playwright, educator, and an actor. He's Tlinkit. Frank, welcome to the show as well. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. And joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Kimberly Gleason. She's the executive director of Two Worlds Native Theater, and she is Danae. Kim, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah hey, everybody. Um, it's good to be here and sharing space. Well, Sky, I'd like to, Spy, excuse me, I'd like to begin with you today. And 
I, one of the things that's always fascinated me about the theater is is the lexicon, you know, the vocabulary and the words. And just to, to help any of our listeners out that might not be super familiar with the theater, and for myself as well, because I don't understand all the terms, what exactly is a libertist? Um, a librettist is essentially the, the writer of the text and the story of an opera. And the opera is essentially a work that is fully scored, so fully sung. Okay, librettist, a librettist, the writer, mm-hmm. more or less. Okay, all right, yeah, thank you, Spy. Appreciate it. Now, Canoe is the second opera you've written so far. What gave you the idea? Uh, shortly uh, before the premiere of my first opera, uh, I had another idea that sort of just took seed uh, about telling the story of basically a creation of a canoe. And I was like, trying to imagine at the time, what must it have been like for the first person or people to have engineered and imagined and dreamed and basically come together to build such a beautiful vessel, a beautiful vehicle. And that became really the, the center point of this work. And it just developed that way. And it centered around four characters to kind of in the non-human space, they kind of live between the human world and the non-human world. And then the two other characters, the sisters, really are firmly planted in the in the human world, but it then collides with this other space. And uh, and so it takes up a really imaginative and evocative uh, world and, and throughout the whole opera. Yeah, it sounds really fascinating. And Spy, writing an opera just seems like a, a really, really big undertaking. What kind of skills and training did you have to acquire in order to make it possible? Well, I think it was a, a conceivable uh, that I could, that the development of the work comes from having a, a, a strong theater background. I really envisioned a way to make the work portable. Uh, so how could I take this work, not just uh, in the concert hall, but outside of it primarily? So we've exper- experimented over the years with developing this work in various spaces, whether it was doing a workshop in a black box theater to a classroom to a home room environment to a large, large concert hall, such as one we're premiering it in now. And it was really to just experiment and to, to become a proof of concept that this work can move in simple ways and that it could be very portable. It can be taken eventually into communities to bring it to the, to the spaces where I really want this story to be shared and told. And Spy, here in 2023, we have so many different formats and types of media for telling stories. People can watch television, they can stream movies, they can go to a play or or they can go to YouTube. But what is it about an opera? What does it convey and and how does it tell a story in the way that none of these other media can? Well, for me, at least within this art form, um, music is so fundamentally important to, to the craft itself. Uh, there's ways you can strip back text and parts of the story that can then be um, moved into the voices of the instruments and how the instruments can totally support a scene, can bring out the humor, can bring out the drama, can bring out the intensity, uh, could, could really underscore lots of the subtext that way as well. So it takes uh, a bit of the pressure off of the singer and, and alleviates some of the responsibility of telling that story uh, and, and, and I think that that is actually a really um, um, important way to share in uh, these kinds of storytelling. 
I, I think a lot of people, when they think of opera, they have these images uh, of people in tuxedos and, and singing in Italian in these really high-pitched soprano voices and tenors and things like that. But uh, part of your opera uh, is an Anishinaabe, right? Mm, yeah, I think I think part of it is really kind of breaking through that um, because it, that's a, a perception I think has um, overtaken what I think is the true uh, importance of uh, of opera. The, the root of opera is work, is to create work and to share work and to bring it really to people, to the people, and that's really about. Um, manifesting a space where people can uh, uh, witness and listen and uh, re reflect. And so that the, the idea of the tuxedo and that, you know, the wine and cheese thing is not totally a, like my, <laughs> my way of looking at it, looking at more of a, as a grassroots approach to it. So that's where having some of the uh, aspects of theater, minimalism and abstraction has really helped with the form because it breaks through that, uh, through that, I guess in a way that um, that barrier, that wall that it creates, or that perception of it, and it's you know, kind of more of a come as you are, wear your jeans if that's what makes you comfortable, wear your casual oxfords, it doesn't matter. It's really about bringing people together to hear a story that's the most important, as opposed to perceptions of uh, of the image. Right, right. I think we could almost look at those as stereotypes, in fact. And so that's just super cool that what you're doing is is just showing us a different way, a more grassroots way to, to share the opera and these stories and this music. So you've got Western instruments uh, and you've got uh, Anishinaabe speaking some of those lines. You've got some of it is in English and and what is it that you hope that audiences will take away from from canoe and just the whole experience of checking out this opera that, that you've created. Uh, I'm really hoping that people can, you know, take away, um, you know, the sense of like how work, art such as this can um, aid and facilitate um, pathways for healing, for humor, to uplift, to feel moved, to feel, you know, inspired. And I think that that's really embodied by the artists and how they are taking up the work with such conviction and commitment and extreme talent, if you ask me. And speaking of the talent, uh, you use a lot of Native talent in the production. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I do. We have um, Michelle Lafferty, who's performing as the Bajamot, and then we have uh, Colin Delbert-Sachuk, who's Tree Spirit, we have Nicole Joy Frazier, who's performing as Gladys, and Christine Dandavino as Constance. And we also have uh, Indigenous uh, 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 talent and expression in the design elements. We have uh, uh, people working on the sets, uh, on makeup, hair. So there's a, a variety of people involved, as well as it's a uh, non-Indigenous non uh artists who are bringing real like joy and real um you know uh love to this piece as well like really really i think it's a, been a, a a whole crew of people who bring really uh, brilliance and wit let's just say mm -hmm. well i'm glad you mentioned the sets because in addition to the music and and all the singing and everything else you also have sets and how important is the space in which an opera is performed how big a deal is that? What do you have to do to make sure that's right? 
Oh, it's it's super helpful when you can be in a space that, like, I would say, like, embraces and hugs the voice, as you say. Uh, you know, I could say, like, we've been in a variety of spaces where it might be drier or, um, you know, just just a little bit uh, um, more rigid on on resonance, so you don't hear the fullness of the voice. But it made a huge difference when we moved into our new space yesterday in our tech rehearsal, where once they started to speak, you really in saying. You really, really hear the fullness, the whole shape of the notes and of the, the tone and color and texture qualities of the music because the, these early instruments are also wonderfully uh, precise in their playing and it's very articulate and very expressive. So I get really excited to bring these two, these anomalies, <laughs> it could say it's an anomaly together, but yet it still truly to me feels extremely indigenous. Like the story and the, the expression musically is well, Spy, it sounds like you could give a master class on, on acoustics and just uh, what, a, what a space needs to offer in terms of just getting that right, the resonance as you describe it. And I love how you say it embraces and hugs the voice, a, a really good space. That is all just so fascinating. And Spy, I know your time's limited today. So I, in fact, you're going back to rehearsal, right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank you again for, for joining us and taking the time to to share your story, and of course, the opera canoe with our listeners today. So, Spy, good luck and uh, wishing you well. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break, listeners. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk with Frank Henry Koshkatas about where the summit meets the stars, where the summit meets the stars. Stay with us. Many of the trails and byways established by Native Americans and used for centuries have evolved into today's highways. They're sacred routes that tribes no longer have control over. But some tribes are working to identify and reclaim important trails to tell their own stories about them. We'll look at a trend by tribes to find and control their own trails on the next Native America Calling. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about live Native theater today. Do you have a favorite Native play? Have you ever been in a play? Or maybe you're looking forward to seeing a theater performance this fall. Phone lines are open if you want to join today's conversation. 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest, Frank Henry Koshkatas. He is in Los Angeles, California, but he's originally from Juneau, Alaska, and Frank, thanks again for joining us today. And you wrote this play titled Where the Summit Meets the Stars. It debuted in Alaska almost a year ago. Have you been pleased with the response? Oh, yeah. No, it had a, a, a tremendous response in Juneau. And um, it's great that the play is coming here at Native Voices at the Autry um, a year later. And it's like um, 
we had a workshop for this play in 2018 here at Native Voices at the Autry for their annual playwriting competition. So it's beautiful that it's coming back here full circle. Well, Frank, what does it take to, to move a play? It premiered in Juneau. That's a long ways from L.A. Do you bring the same actors down? Do you bring some of the sets and, and costumes? Or do you just recreate all of that in L.A.? Uh, this time around, we're just recreating everything down here, which is really cool. Um, a full new cast. Um, I directed the Alaska run, so we have um, two wonderful directors, Matthew Burgos and Delena Studio or Studi, um, directing the play down here, which is fantastic. They're doing a wonderful job. All right. And when will it premiere there at the Autry in L.A.? Um, we have, uh, we're really, really excited um, that it's premiering officially on the 29th. I think there's a couple of previews um, leading up to it the week of the 29th of this month of September, and then it runs until October 13th. Okay, so you've just got a few weeks to, to get all your rehearsals and get all your sets, everything squared away. And Frank, the story of where the summit meets the stars, it starts with a very dramatic event that really sets the stage for an exploration of, of Tlingit culture. What are you looking to say about the initial driver of the plot and, and what it does for the whole story? Well, the whole thing is, is a mystery. And um, when I wrote this play, there's two concurrent stories happening at the same time. And of course, the two stories eventually cross at some point. Um, but the whole time I want you to figure out, uh, you're, you're thinking about who these characters are, what they're doing there, and, um, and uh, where, the, where it's going. It's really curious to me. Some of the people figure out what's happening within the play. They figure out, uh, they're thinking about the mystery the whole time, and they can figure it out pretty early. Some people never figure it out until the very end. And uh, throughout the whole time, I'm, I'm interjecting, I have these interjections within the play. Um, that sort of break reality, and it'll break into a random poetry, it'll break into a song, it'll break into oratory. Um, and all of these I've, are, are, you know, elements of the performing arts in Clinket um, culture. So it was really interesting and a, a nice challenge for me to be able to interject these throughout the whole play uh, into a Western or Eurocentric theater style on the on like a Western stage. So it was nice to be able to highlight some of the things that are really interesting to me and unique to our performing arts and my culture and put, up, put them up on stage. Well, Frank, it, it sounds similar to a native twist on kind of a classic whodunit. And, and for the audience, is it interactive at all? Like when they kind of, you know, at what point if they figure out what the mystery is, um, how involved are they? Are they really just spectators just kind of waiting for the whole plot to resolve itself? Oh, that's a wonderful thing. Um, it's something I think about a lot within, um, especially within indigenous performing arts, maybe specifically for Clinkett, because within um, our performing arts, there's so much call and response that it's sometimes, um, it's so, sometimes it's so opposite of what we do, like within the Western stage, where you kind of just sit and watch. Um, people are, you know, more than welcome to sit and watch. People are more than welcome to interact, especially during the songs and music. Um, but, uh yeah, it's not, uh, I mean, it wouldn't be great to like yell out what the answer is right at the beginning, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, a uh, um, the interaction within the audience is always exciting. I love, I love performing for indigenous audiences, uh, because there is such good call and response that a lot of times you're not just sitting there, but the very first, 
uh, indigenous play, the first Clinkett play I did, someone got up on stage with us, started dancing in the middle of a song that we were doing. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is very different than like the, the theater training that I was, I was brought up with. And it's something I, I love and adore. And like during the whole thing, I'm, I'm talking in Clinkett and people are calling and responding because that's our protocol. And that's what we're used to within the performing arts. And it can be a little off-putting if you're not used to it, but I think it's wonderful. And it's, it's a beautiful feeling. Right, right. And as we were talking earlier about the the tuxedo wine and cheese crowd that we so often equate with, with the theater. Uh, that's yeah. a, little, a little bit of a turn there. Sounds exciting, yeah, though. Lactose intolerance, so the cheese probably isn't going to help us on stage. <laughs> that's true. That is true, too. Yeah. Well, Frank, tell us more about how you incorporate Alaska Native culture in, into the performance. And obviously, there are so many elements. How do you choose what part of your culture you want to share and what you don't share? That's a really good point. Um, there's some, you know, spiritual elements and um, within this that we, you know, we couldn't practice or do anything with for many, many years until within the last 50 years. So the fact that now we're doing this in a professional setting like Native Voice of the Autry on stage is sort of an amazing, beautiful thing. Uh, but of course, we have some of the performing arts that I really, really enjoy, uh, specifically within the Northwest, uh, Pacific Northwest and Clinkett country is we have like oratory, um, we have song, we have dance, we have um, we have form line and regalia and our atu, which is our sacred objects. Uh, I had to fly down um, a paddle that we bring that's in the play that was uh, commissioned for the Juno production. So I guess there was some that came down, but um, the paddle and the drum and people, I had someone in the airport in Seattle and she goes, I have to ask you what's in that thing that you're carrying around because I have this giant paddle in my hand wrapped in bubble wrap and I was like it's a paddle and then I just left it at that like I love seeing how confused this person was um but uh <laughs> yeah so incorporating and weaving those into a western stage and um has, has been a really good challenge and it's really fun it's something I like to do within all of my plays and Frank how long have you been writing plays um, my first official play was uh, They Don't Talk Back, which also came through Native Voice at the Autry, also came through Perseverance Theater, but that one also went through um, La Jolla Playhouse down in San Diego. And um, that was 2016, I think. And I think I've written um, like three or four plays, maybe more than that since. And then um, it's opened up other opportunities like writing. We, I was nominated for an Emmy with a bunch of other writers for uh, Molly Denali. And I've written a couple of children's books, and um, it's, it's opened up a whole bunch of opportunities. Frank, in addition to, to the tuxedos and, and all the pomp and circumstance that people think of with the theater, I think sometimes also people are concerned that it's going to be really expensive to, to go to a live performance like that. And does that have to be? Is it possible to, to do performances and in, in plays like this and make them affordable to audiences? Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially with um, the previews leading up to the up to opening night, there's they're always sometimes um, they're discounted or pay as you can, you know, especially reaching out to indigenous communities and um, and trying to make things uh, make it possible and accessible for indigenous people and uh, for all people that um, might be concerned where where financial concerns might be uh, something in the way for them to go see a show. 
And now that you're there in LA, you're getting ready to to premiere there the play. And how are you embracing the native community there in Los Angeles and Southern California? Are are, are folks excited? Is there buzz about the play coming up? Yeah, um, I think so. It's like uh, we had, you know, yesterday was the very first day of rehearsal, and we had um, someone from a local tribe come in and do a blessing and. Um, you know, the native voice of the Autry has always done, has been like a beacon for indigenous people within uh, the greater Los Angeles and a lot of Southern California, um, because there are a lot of indigenous people here from tribes all across Turtle Island. And it becomes a place where you can um, work on this craft, you know, especially within this vast jungle of, of Los Angeles, you know, being able to find community here, find it within native voice of the Autry. It's been here for 30 plus years, I think. So, um, you know, they've been, they've been building this community for a long time and uh, the work that they've done has been, been beautiful and amazing. And Frank, do you find that there's growing interest, uh, for plays and live theater in, in Indian country and also in Alaska native communities, or is this something that's just kind of taking hold now? Uh, I think it's always been there. You know, these stories have been told for thousands of years. Like this is all indigenous land where the stories are there. It's like people are finally, you know, paying attention and, and listening to the stories that are being told. Um, when I wrote this play, one of my uh, a dear elder that has recently walked into the forest told us. Um, he goes, "Well, this is uh, these these aren't your your plays," and I was like, "Oh," and he goes, "This isn't your play. This." This play is, is, has been here for a very long time. These stories that you're telling on stage have been here. You might think that you created them, but your ancestors are whispering these stories back to you because, because they've been lost. And I was like, that's really kind of a beautiful thing. And it takes a lot of pressure off me, honestly. So it's like you become a channel for telling the stories that have always been here. Um, I love that uh, theaters across the country are starting to uh, recognize uh, indigenous, the talent within indigenous storytellers, you know, we have amazing playwrights and, um, you know, all across the country that are, that are now putting up plays, uh, and in Canada, of course, too, uh, putting up indigenous plays, um, in professional settings, you know, Larissa Fasthorse's play, Thanksgiving play going up in Broadway is a, is an amazing thing. So, um, yeah, I think, I think people are starting to pay attention in Alaska, we've we have a number of different playwrights that are working on things um, all the time. Vera Starbard Bedard has um, has been putting out great work, and it's crossed over into TV as well. She's she was writing for Alaska Daily and Molly Denali, and she has so many other projects. And that all started from Indigenous storytelling and in, on the stage. Right. We had Vera on the show earlier this year to talk about her career. Really exciting and. So, Frank, you started in Alaska, now you're in L.A. Where else do you hope to stage this play? Um, wherever it wants to be told, I think. Um, a lot of the times it's like I think people get nervous, especially with so many different tribes, where the story should be told. But um, one of the things that I like to write for is trying to find, like, universals within the stage. So um, no matter where you're from, you're going to be able to find and identify things about this play that you relate to um, when they don't talk back. My other play went to La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego. I was sort of like, why does anyone want to care here, uh, <laughs> you know, about a clinket play from Alaska. But uh, afterwards during the talkbacks during, they don't talk back. They said, um, 
someone goes, I don't know anything about Alaska, but I know who all these characters were. And it helps me get a better understanding of indigenous people, about Clinket people, which I had never heard from. And because we have so much in common and we're all the, my, the plays that I write are all set in contemporary time. So it's showing indigenous people now instead of like in a past tense, which is a really good thing. We are here now. We're in present tense, and uh, I like to highlight those things and show that we have these connections and similarities to anyone who wants to see these plays. And, and Frank, for somebody listening now who's interested in maybe getting involved in the theater, maybe they'd try to like to, to try and write a play or perform, what do you suggest? Just check out like a local community theater or maybe take a class at a community college? What's the best way? I think just seeing theater. I mean, it's it's um, it's that's what helps inspire. Whenever um, I when I was a playwright in residence at La Jolla Playhouse, and where I wrote this play uh, over the span of six days, and um, they got me tickets to go see shows all around San Diego. And after seeing the shows, I go, okay, great. I have an idea of what mine what this play could look like, and I kind of busted this play out over six days, and. Um, the best thing to do is just figure out what what story you want to tell and, and what way you want to tell it. And the best way to do that is just to go see some shows. Um, I think that's that's always the best thing. Sure, you could take you could take classes at the university. I went to the University of Hawaii Manoa, but I studied acting. I didn't study playwriting, uh, but I saw a lot of shows, and that, I think that helped me with my structure. A lot of times, it's like find your own writing voice, find your own structure and, um, and just write, you know, I, I plot all my ideas out on my phone. I could pull up notes and like scroll through pages and pages of notes. Whenever I have something that strikes me as like, maybe this will be a cool line. Maybe this will be a cool play. Maybe this is an interesting poem. And because we have the accessibility and the technology that we could, we could track these things all the time. Um, I track everything and, and do extensive notes, and then I sit there and write, and write it. the writing process actually goes pretty quickly. Just check out some plays is what Frank recommends. Go see them. Go get involved. And, Frank, you mentioned Hawaii, where you went to school, and what a coincidence. We actually have a caller right now from Honolulu, Lorena, who is listening online. Hello, Lorena. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi, Frank. It's Lorena. Hey. Hi. How's it? I'm... Uh... I'm calling from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where I'm still a professor. I'm Frank's, one of Frank's former teachers there. Um, and, you know, on behalf of all of us, we are so proud of what you're doing and any way in which we contributed. I want to point out the directing class you took with me. I mean, you know, probably launched you on your way. Um, probably. But yes, the second seriously, time I went through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, we're, we're following your career and um, delighted to see and the way it intersects with the work we're doing with Native Hawaiian uh, playwriting. So hopefully maybe there's some collaboration collaboration in the future. Lorena, yeah, thank you. That. I've always dreamed of that. Yeah, yeah, Lorena, and thank you for calling Lorena. And I want to ask you, have you had a chance to see where the summit meets the stars yet? No, have not. You know, the commute is killing me. <laughs> We're going to have to get you stateside. What do you think, Frank? Yeah, start paddling now. You'll make it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You'll make it for the premiere in a few weeks. Yeah. All righty. Well, that was Lorena calling from Honolulu, Hawaii, and uh, Frank, one of your mentors, huh? Yeah, that's great. It's so great to hear her voice. All righty.
Well, we're going to take another break here, and uh, we're going to continue this conversation talking about native theater, talking about operas, talking about plays, talking about all aspects of the theater. And we welcome callers with questions or comments. Our number, 1-800-996-2848. Number again, 1-800-996-2848. You can also hit us up on social media. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Or just go to our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com, and you can comment that way as well. But at all costs, we encourage people to engage with us either by calling or on social media. We love to hear from our listeners and our audience, so please engage, 1-800-996-2848. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Frank, but we're also going to talk with Kimberly Gleason. She's the executive director of Two Worlds Native Theater in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we're going to learn a little about what it takes to manage and maintain a theater in the digital world that we live in today. So, folks, stay with us. It's a Friday on Native America Calling. We'll be right back. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it, carbon monoxide. It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled, yet it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're still waiting to hear your thoughts on Native theater. Tell us about your favorite Native plays, stage actors, or theater troops. I had a chance to check out a play recently. I saw Bear Grease last month in Santa Fe which is an indigenous-led take on the classic musical Grease. And I'll tell you what, folks, it was a really, really good show. Give us a call. Share your thoughts and comments on the theater, native theater, in fact, 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. Phone lines are open. Give us a call. And at this point, let's bring our third guest into the conversation, Kimberly Gleason, Executive Director of Two Worlds Native Theater. Kim, how you doing? I'm good, and you can just refer as Kim. That's fine. <laughs> okay, you got it. You got it, Kim. Well, tell us more about Two Worlds Native Theater and, and what performances you have coming up. Sure. Um, so we are excited to be an ensemble full of discovery and giving voice and vision to the stories of our Native and Indigenous people. Um, we do a lot of advocacy through performing, educating diverse communities, providing, obviously, the mainstream culture culture with a positive representation of Native Indigenous communities. Some of our um, core values um, over the years have been um, elevated into empowering Native communities. But Well, Frank, I want to turn back to you. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of an issue there with Kim. We'll get her back on the line. But uh, Frank, uh, I want to ask you, because it seems like theaters and you know with with movies and, and even movie theaters themselves have struggled in recent years with the pandemic and people just staying home and they're streaming and they're watching content at home so is it tough just to get people out of their houses and down in a theater to watch a live performance nowadays just a little bit of like the, the economics and the business side of it yeah i think um i think things are starting to pick back up um especially after the pandemic i think a lot of people were really nervous um and uh, 
theater a lot, obviously for very understandable reasons. And um, things like uh, Summit Meets the Stars, when they were up in Alaska, finally saw some of the uh, coming back to almost regular numbers as far as sales, um, but it had taken a couple of years. And I think a lot of the times um, the theaters go through a lot of precautions to make sure that people are still feeling safe while they're coming to the theater. You know, mm -hmm. um, some of them still had mask mandates and, uh, you know, they're, they're very hyper vigilant um, about uh, keeping the cast safe. Um, you know, if anyone's feeling sick, making sure that they're going home. Um, but I think people are starting to turn back around and starting to come and see live performances. I know I had, uh, I was always very nervous uh, about seeing live performances and I'm finally starting to feel more comfortable about going and attending and supporting um, all these artists and uh, their community theaters, regional theaters, professional theaters that they live by. Uh, a lot of times these theaters can be a voice of the community. So it's important that they stay open and it's important that they stay supported. Right, right. That's a good point to make. They can be community hubs in, in addition to being performance spaces. And uh, let's go back to Kim. Kim, we lost you there. You were going great guns, telling us all about <laughs> Two Worlds Native Theater and everything else. Uh, go <laughs> ahead and pick up where you left off. Sure. Um, just to go over the core values, uh, we do definitely have a, uh, a mission to reclaim and impact our Native communities, or especially our Native American artists and providing uh, a community with uh, thought-provoking, innovative works of performance art, and as well as providing a career and leadership building experiences, which elevate these Native artists to take the next step in their careers as well. Um, we are excited to bring back one of our uh, very important shows that has been on um, the circuit, or the circuit, uh, basically, you know, it's been going in and, and around, but one of the shows that we do have is uh, Spider-Woman Stories, which we're most proud about. Um, it's an interactive, immersive storytelling event that uh, features um, the history of Indigenous women, and it presents a collection of shared moments and celebrates um, these um, four Native American women who uh, journey together in the world of Spider-Woman. And so um, they share their stories, and they move toward enlightenment. Um, and it's basically um, a, 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 a really good immersive storytelling that frees us from the constraints stereotypes and um, um, gives the voices back to the Native American matriarchal circles of uh, Native and Indigenous people. So um, in this play, we honor, um, we honor um, our sacrifices of our ancestors. We touch on the beauty of being a Native woman and the next identity, um, talking about what, what we believe our identity is um, by taking both past and present of what we've learned from our ancestors and moving forward in a world where it's so challenging. So we're really excited about this show. It's directed by myself. It did feature um, a past cast members of Deanna Allison, Maria Teresa Herrera, Christina Castro, and myself, that we do have a new cast um, featuring O.E. Ray, Rhea Thundercloud, uh, Maria, and Christina Castro. So um, we are excited to bring this on October 14th to the Taos Center of the, for the Arts in uh, Taos, New Mexico. And uh, we can, if you, anyone is interested, you can find more information at the SOMOS. Um, it's going to be part of the SOMOS annual festival in Taos, New Mexico on October 4th. It's exciting because we're branching out um, more as, as, as our work is progressing, we're branching out on um, through uh, other indigenous communities, but we're being invited more into festivals to premiere more shows and to advocate for our diverse cast and ensemble to, to promote native theater. And through, uh, through our lens, obviously, we're a, nat a native-led um, organization as well. 
So it's basically just uh, producing um, drama um, primarily for the Indian community and Native American community that wants to, to see what we do and what we do best. And Kim, how hard is it to manage and maintain a theater in Albuquerque? Is it tough? I mean, obviously you have to deal with the city and then you've got just, you know, such a big market there. A lot of native folks, but then there's a lot of non-native folks too. And just a lot of things to do in Albuquerque. How do you draw people in? Well, we've uh, started to research a lot of this that um, when we have um, big groups of Native American um, communities in the city of Albuquerque, which is basically the time of April or November, um, we started to realize that we need to branch out our resources and outreach um, a little bit more. We are excited to um, have a actual um, subcommittee with the city of Albuquerque. Um, our hope in the next three years is to build a Native American performing arts center in Albuquerque um, that we can um, have and call home for Native theater for years to come and for to provide more um, education opportunities for youth and for elders. And we're hoping to bring that into fruition in the next three years. So with with that in mind, uh, we have a bigger dream um, that, you know, we could produce annual shows under our belt, Native-led, and with our ensemble, including uh, the film industry as well. So we're really excited about this project. So as soon as we have it, then we um, are certain that we're going to be able to produce year-round. All right. And Kim, I know you also, in addition to to being such a, a huge inspiration and a driving force for Native theater, you're also pretty passionate uh, about the current SAC writers and the actor strike. And uh, you folks are, are working on a fund, I think, even to support that effort, is not? Yes. Um, so I do work with Native Realities. I'm happy to say that I am working under the belt of Ms. Uh, Dr. Lee Francis. So in response, Native Realities has created an ITX Indigenous Relief Fund to help sustain workers in the specific industry who are in need of assistance uh, while they're not working um, due to the SAG and um, writers' union strike that's happening. Um, So, of course, we have our own programs going, but we also take um, very um, seriously that our Native Indigenous actors are out of work. And uh, we're trying all of our, um, we're putting everybody um, into this uh, Indigenous Relief Fund to to honor their time and commitment to the stage or to film. Um, most of the actors that I've worked with in Two Worlds have um, developed film careers um, on their own. And uh, it's so, you know, the, uh, obviously the film industry is uh, clearly here in New Mexico. So we wanted to make sure that we uh, elevate our, our artists by supporting them as well financially. And Kim, does the SAG strike, does it impact live theater at all? I mean, obviously SAG, Screen Actors Guild Theater, I don't believe they're the same union, but there's got to be some ripple effects. There is some ripple effects. Um, Some of the artists that we work with are SAG actors. Um, They are, um, some of our ensemble members are actually SAG actors. And so they work under our belt, and um, really um, it's, it's kind of heartbroken that they are not able to produce um, their work here in New Mexico as much as they'd like to. So um, right now they're just uh, – we're, ta- we're taking this time to revamp what the industry um, looks like. Um, obviously this strike is very important to them, and we're making sure that we take the next steps with them to help elevate through an indigenous lens and advocate for Native voices. Okay. And I know that Two Worlds is inclusive of other mediums of storyteller, including film. Uh, Do you folks have anything Mm -hmm. coming up in terms of film? 
We sure do. On November 4th, um, or excuse me, November 3rd, we are part of the City of Albuquerque's Indigenous Life Celebration. We have a, um, we're excited to uh, actually have Two Worlds partner with uh, the city uh, for our first inaugural Native American Film Festival that's going to be taking place at the Chemo Theater. And um, due to this writer's strike, we've had um, some trouble um, getting some more uh, films involved with the festival. So um, our hope is to um, announce and let people know that they can submit their films to us um, as part of the city, and they can send that to Terry Sloan at cabq.gov, and I'll share that information um, a little bit later. So, All right. Yeah, hello. we'll go ahead and share that information now because actually we're sure, kind of winding sure. down. Yeah. <laughs> sure. That's uh, Terry Sloan, T-E-R-R-Y-S-L. O-A-N at C-A-B-Q dot gov. And um, anyone that's interested in finding more information, um, we have year-round auditions and we have um, um, events going on on a year-round basis as well. And you can find uh, Two Worlds at Two Worlds um, NM at, or excuse me, Two Worlds NM as in New Mexico at uh, dot org. So Got it. That's where you'll find us. And we're also, also on social media. So, Thank you very All much. Right. Yeah, yeah, you bet, Kim. And, and let's talk a little bit more about the strike and its impact, because I, I know that it uh, it had an effect on the film festival. And did it open up some other opportunities as well in terms of independent projects? Oh, yes. Um, I'm lucky to know several and a good handful of local actors here in New Mexico. And I have to express that we have so many um, talented filmmakers here in um, in New Mexico that are producing and advocating their own work. Um, some of them happen to be board members for Two Worlds as well, like Nathaniel Fuentes, who has a documentary going out right now. Um, and uh, we have our own documentary as well that we're trying to produce uh, for Two Worlds. It's our journey to opening up the first Native American Performing Arts Center in Albuquerque. Um, along with that, um, we've been able to branch out and, and talk with other local filmmakers and get them involved with this festival. So it's kind of exciting, although the SAG industry has affected some of the work that we um, were going to be doing. But it has opened up the doors for bringing in more of the local um, energy that is very exciting to see in New Mexico. Um, happened to go to Swaya's uh, Film Festival um, probably a couple weeks ago, and it was really impactful um, to, to be surrounded by so many um, wonderful um, Native-led uh, filmmakers there. So really excited about the future to work with them. You bet, Kim. And uh, we've been joking around uh, this whole show about about the tuxedos and the wine and the cheese plates and uh, how that doesn't necessarily fit Native America. But uh, this Native film event that uh, you have taking place at the Chemo Theater in Albuquerque, that is a black tie event, if I'm not mistaken. So folks do need to uh, dress up a little bit if they want to attend that. Is that right? Yes. Uh, bring your turquoise. Uh, get out your moccasins, your best your best uh, jewelry, you know, come on down and sparkle and shine. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, good information here that we are sharing on Native America Calling today, learning all about Native theater. And uh, Kim, what advice do you have to anybody listening who uh, wants to maybe get involved with the theater? I know earlier we had Frank and he talked about just going out and checking out plays, checking out performances. What can you add to that? Well, being a Native American uh, woman, uh, I believe that 
Native women have the time right now to tell our stories and lead um, with uh, with courage and with strength. And I believe right now that um, anyone that identifies as a Native woman and a matriarch, I think that uh, we need to be elevated more. And uh, my hope is to create space for future um, Native American women, Indigenous women who are inspiring to go into this field. It is possible. At first, when I started, I didn't think it was possible, um, but here I am years now um, helping to open up the doors for the future. And um, I'm hoping that people will continue to take the courage to um, train and educate themselves on the um, positive reputation of who our people are. All right. Anything else on the calendar, Kim, after the film festival? I'm thinking this winter, maybe even early next year. Yes, um, we are actually also engaged on a National Day of Racial Healing. It's going to be on January 16th. It's the day after Martin Luther King um, Festival, or excuse me, the uh, Native American um, Martin Luther King Day. We are actually trying to promote theater of color here in Albuquerque. So we are working with another local organization that is um, going to be um, advocating more um, rights, uh, the theater using theater on a social social justice level, and uh, we are excited to bring that to Albuquerque here um, and promote that, advocate for social change, and discuss and build um, more community among the artists um, here in our community and expand and empower our um, our, our community more um, with the provoking thought and facilitating discussion that we have planned. All right. Well, Kim, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all this information and best of luck to you moving forward. And at this point, unfortunately, we are out of time. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show. But before I do, I want to thank our three guests today, Dr. Spy, Dano Mae Welch, Frank Henry Koshkatas, and Kimberly Gleason for delivering a great conversation on Native theater and the thespians who make it all possible. Join us as we begin next week here on Native America Calling with a discussion about tribes reviving important trails and trade routes for both tourism and cultural connections. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. And the president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. I'm Sean Spruce. We'll talk again soon. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. SBA wants to see you win. They want to see you grow. They have been so helpful and so resourceful. Thanks to the SBA, my business is thriving today. Make sure you get in touch with SBA and you will definitely be on your way to a winning path. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. 
Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.